Psalms chapter number 85 this morning, uh, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Now that word Selah, you know what that means? That means stop and pause right there. I think sometimes that's the Lord's cue to shout. Amen. Because you read those verses, we'd have enough shout about from now throughout eternity just in what the Lord's done for us in those first two verses. But it says, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely His salvation is nigh them that fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now I want you to pay close attention to verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth. and Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before Him, and shall set us in the way of His steps. Let's read verse 10 again. Our text is found there. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be earnest in our prayers this morning. Help us, Father, as we approach Your throne to be mindful of the precious blood that had to be shed for us to have that privilege. Help us, Lord, to come with meeting You in our hearts and minds. God, I want to ask You this morning, Lord, to do in hearts what only You can do. Father, I do not have within me what it takes to preach, Lord. I pray, Lord, that You would give me the unction and the power that's needed. God, grant it in such a way that You get glory, that You get honor. If there's one here that's lost and undone without Christ. I pray You'd convict them of their sinful state. Show them their need of Calvary and of the precious blood. God, I pray this morning, if there's one that's backslidden, has wandered from You, that this morning they would find that the porch light's still on. And that You, Lord, will forgive them and do a work in their heart and in their life and draw them close to Yourself. God, I want to thank You for what You've done in my life. Oh, God, I didn't deserve it even in the least, Lord. And you know that, and I know it too. But, Lord, you looked down upon me, and you convicted me, and you saved me. And it was all by grace, Lord. And I want to praise your holy name for it. And I'd ask, Father, this morning, that before we'd leave this place, we'd know we've met with you. Father, help us to be obedient to your word. We ask these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I'm fascinated by verse number 10. You know, as a preacher studies for sermons, sometimes he finds that he pours himself into certain sermons and outlines, and then the Lord just gives him something sometimes. And uh, sometimes it's, it's difficult, and then sometimes it's like when old Lydia got saved, 
the Bible says the Lord just opened her heart, like plucking a ripe apple from a tree. The Lord just, just gives it to you. And last night I had done a lot of studying and all day yesterday and preparing sermons. Uh, but late last night the Lord began to speak to my heart concerning this passage. And the Lord met with me in the stillness of the dark and spoke these truths to my heart. Now, I'm not talking about advanced revelation. I'm not talking about new revelation. I'm not saying that He told me anything He hadn't told you. But I'm just merely saying He used these verses to make them real in my heart and life. And as I studied this passage during that meeting in the dark, I found that this passage is about a meeting that took place in the dark. The Bible tells us that mercy and truth are met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, you know, sometimes we tend to read God's Word, and sometimes we don't soak it in. Sometimes we just let the words just roll right over us, and especially beautiful words like mercy and truth and righteousness and peace and things like love and grace. We just read those words, and they almost become synonymous to us. But if you read this passage, you'll find out that there's a lot more to this than meets the eye at first. Consider these four attributes. Mercy, truth, righteousness, and peace. All four of them are describing God and His attributes. But you'll find as you study them that this meeting was not an easy meeting to arrange. You ever had a meeting that it seemed like it just took forever to get with somebody sometime? You ever had to made a doctor's appointment, uh, made an appointment with a lawyer, amen, <laughs> but made an appointment, and it just seemed like it took forever to get that. It was a difficult meeting to put together. I want to notice a few things this morning, and I want to first touch on the difficulty of this meeting. You see, this wasn't an easy thing to arrange for mercy and truth to meet together. It wasn't an easy thing for the righteousness of God and the peace of God to meet together. In fact, it, it, it was so difficult, we might say that these things are mutually exclusive one of the other. I want us to notice, first off, that all four of these things are manifest, immutable attributes of God. Now, you say, preacher, boy, that was an expensive phrase. But let me just put it this way. These four attributes describe God, and there's no denying that they describe God. As we study the Bible, the Bible teaches very clearly that God is a merciful God. Aren't you thankful that His mercies are new every morning? Because I'm going to tell you something, I mess up every day. I need them to be new every morning. I'm thankful I've got a God that meets my needs. The Bible tells us in the book of, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 4 and verse 31, it says, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. Now, I don't think any of us could deny that God is a merciful God. The truth of the matter is this, neighbor. If God was not merciful, you and I would be in hell this morning. But we have a merciful God. But there's a problem, though. You say, preacher, there's a problem. Yeah, the Bible says mercy and truth. And you say, preacher, what are you driving at? The Bible tells us that truthfulness and truth is an attribute of God. In fact, Christ made this statement in John chapter 14. Most of you could quote it with me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter number 17, Christ was praying for the disciples and He spoke to His heavenly Father and He said, Sanctify them uh, through uh, Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Can I tell you that everything God says is true? Can I tell you that everything God does is true? But that presents a problem. You see, God has made clear that sin has a penalty. 
God has made clear that sin has a price that has to be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, when you work all week and at the end of the week somebody gives you a paycheck, you've earned that. You deserve it. But you know that word deserve goes both ways. Because you're born into this world a sinner, you're not only a sinner by nature, but a sinner by action. The Bible says we deserve to die and go to hell. That's our wages. So let me ask you something. How could mercy and truth coincide? How can God be true to the truth of His Word and yet show mercy? We find that not only mercy and truth are attributes of God, but we find that righteousness is an attribute of God. The Bible says in Psalm 71, 19, Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who has done great things? O God, who is like unto Thee? I believe the righteousness of God is an indisputable element. Now, you can argue that you don't understand what God did, but you put yourself in a dangerous position when you say God was wrong in what He did. The fact is, the Bible presents God as being righteous, true, justified, always enacting injustice. You know, we live in a world, let me just tell you something, church. We live in a world that is trying to, trying to abase God. Did you know that? We're living in a world that wants to try to tell you, and we live in a world of contemporary, modern, casual Christianity that tries to tell you that God is on the same level as you. Now, you say, oh, preacher, they don't try to tell you that. Listen, neighbor, when they try to preach nothing but the love of God without preaching the holiness of God, that's what they're trying to do. I'm not saying that God's love is not greater than our love, but I'm telling you this. Do you know that a lost man has at least somewhat of an idea of what love is? They love each other. They love their family. uh, They love their spouse. But do you know that a lost man has no clue what holiness is? They don't understand uh, righteousness in its purest form. And the holiness of God is His righteousness as an attribute. And the Bible says that God is a righteous God. God doesn't sin like some authors have tried to say. Uh, The Bible says that Christ knew no sin, He did no sin, and in Him was no sin. You say, preacher, why does it say it that way? Because the Bible's telling us that He did no sin, meaning He never committed a sin. He knew no sin, uh, meaning that in His mind and in His thoughts there was never a sinful thought nor a sinful inclination. What does it mean when it says that in Him was no sin? It means He was born of a virgin, perfect and sinless, as the Bible teaches. Uh, We have a righteous God today, church. What about His peace? The Bible says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, verse 33. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is a God of peace. Now, the Bible says that the Lord is a man of war. You say, how can He be of war and of peace? Because being a just and almighty and ultimate God, He cannot tolerate unrighteousness. So I'd ask you this, how can His righteousness and His peace coincide? The fact is, there's some difficulties to this problem because we see some immutable attributes of God. They are manifestly immutable. But I want to say, secondly, they're mutually exclusive. You see, God in and of Himself has no difficulty uh, coinciding and harmonizing His mercy and His truth because He's perfect. He never goes against His Word. He never forsakes it. God has no problem uh, harmonizing His righteousness and His peace concerning Himself. Because He always does the right thing. And when God does the right thing, there's no reason to be at odds with Himself. But when it comes to me and you, we find that these truths are mutually exclusive of each other. You say, what do you mean? Well, God's a merciful God, and I'm thankful that God is a merciful God. Uh, But can I say to you that the truth of God's Word teaches very clearly that the soul that sinneth 
it shall die. The fact is, God is a merciful God, but we've offended a holy law. We've messed up. We've sinned. We've been born into sin, and we've continued in sin. Every single person in this room. Do you know there's not a single perfect person in this room? I hate to burst some people's bubbles, but there's not a single perfect person in this whole room. But can I tell you that God can still be merciful, even though the soul that sinneth it shall die. You say, oh, well, He, he harmonizes His mercy and His truth by ignoring one or the other. And by the way, to have mercy and truth be harmonized without something coming into the scenario that changes matters, he has to compromise one of them. He either has to uphold his truth, and if he's upholding his truth, he's not having mercy. Now, you say, oh, but God's merciful. But let me tell you something. Mercy is an attribute of God that does not have to be exercised. It is totally up to his sovereign will. You say, what do you mean? Uh, He said about Pharaoh, I will harden whom I will harden. God has the decision in the matter. And so he could have forsaken mercy and upheld truth because the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die. And he could have given us our just dues. Or he could have been merciful and forsaken his word. What does the Bible say about that? The book of Psalms says, Forever, O Lord, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Can I tell you, people say there's nothing as sure as death and taxes. Can I tell you those aren't the two most sure things? Because there's uh, about half of this country that don't pay taxes. Amen? Did I upset anybody? If I did, it's probably because I'm paying for you to live. <laughs> and can I tell you that, buddy, I'm hoping to cheat death. <laughs> I'm hoping to cheat death. I, I'm hoping old death ain't going to get his hands on this believer. Because the Bible says we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm hoping to cheat old death. I hope he don't get his icy fingers around this person. So the most sure thing in the world is not death and taxes. The most sure thing in the Word is the perfect, preserved, infallible, inerrant, plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. It's never going to fail, never going to be forsaken. It's never going to be untrue. God's Word will always maintain truth. So mercy and truth are, are, are absolutely mutually exclusive. They cannot coincide naturally. We find that the righteousness of God is much the same way. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have come short of God's glory. The glory of God is the presence and person of God. And so, in other words, if you want to stand on the same platform as God has, you're going to have to be sinless to do it. And every one of us has sinned. So how's God going to maintain His righteousness when the Bible says in Isaiah chapter number 57, verse 21, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You see, by God's definition, boy, this is going to upset Dr. Phil. By God's definition, you and I are just wicked, godless sinners. That's how we're born into this world. So how are we going to have the peace of God when there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked? The fact is, this world talks more about peace than anything else. You know that? We've got today uh, people trying to take our guns away because they believe that's going to produce peace. You know how criminals are so good at following the law, right? don't take a lot of sense, does it, to figure that out? But uh, we live in a world where they're trying to take away guns. Do you know the first uh, murder in the, in the world wasn't committed with a Bushmaster AR-15? Let me tell you something, neighbor. They can take our guns away. People take rocks and beat each other over the head. Wickedness is in the depths of the human heart. And there's no peace to the wicked man. 
He may try to entertain the notion of peace, but peace only comes from the Prince of Peace. That's the only place it comes from. So we see that these things are mutually exclusive. Can I say that they are manwardly impossible? You say, what do you mean? In other words, man can't achieve these things. It's impossible. The Bible tells us uh, very clearly in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 16, the end of the verse, it says, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Let me tell you something. If you're trying to gain God's mercy by your good works, you're never going to have it. If you're trying to understand God's truth and line up with God's truth by your own works, it's never going to happen. If you're trying to merit God's righteousness by your own good works, it's never going to happen. If you're trying to have peace in your heart and life by being a good person, a good Christian, uh, by, by trying to uh, live spotless in this world, by trying to join a church, you're never going to have peace. There's only one way to gain peace. We find that the difficult nature of this meeting, but I want to say there was a dire necessity of this meeting. For you and I, it was vital that this meeting take place between mercy and truth. It was vital that this mercy, or that this meeting take place between righteousness and peace. You see, the fact is, the Bible says that life ends. Uh, I'm not talking about annihilation, or let me just give it to you this way. The reason it was necessary is because life ends. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, after this the judgment. I, I don't care how healthy you are, if the Lord does not come back first, or if you are a lost person, death is coming for you. You say, I'm young, I'm healthy, it doesn't matter. Can I say to you, you know, the first funeral I ever preached was a 75-day-old infant. Death is not a respecter of persons. It'll take any man at any time. And can I tell you that you may avoid it for a good long while. You may live your life. You may live to be 150 years old. Probably by the time I get that old, that's what's going to happen. They're going to have us all hooked up to machines living to 150 years old, you know. But there's coming a day when that heart's going to stop beating. That lung's going to stop breathing. There's going to come a day when the electricity that flows through your mind will cut off. There's coming a day when death is coming for you. And because life ends, it's absolutely necessary that this meeting have taken place. Can I tell you, not only because life ends, but because the law implicates us. You say, I'm not afraid of the judgment. There's only two people in this world that are not afraid of the judgment. And that's justified believers by the blood of Christ and fools. That's the only type of people in this world that are not afraid of the judgment of God. And if you're not afraid of God's judgment today, and, uh, and it's because you're not a justified believer, saved, washed in the blood of Christ, it's because you're a fool. Amen? It's because you're a fool. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now, the truth is the atheists can march all they want. I heard about an atheist church over in England wonder what their tithes are like. Amen? <laughs> I wonder how, how good atheists are at giving, because you see, they can't give in grace. I wonder what their meetings are like. I wonder if there's any joy in their meetings. Joy over what? Christ said, I, I give you joy. He said, these things right unto you that your joy may be full. I, I wonder if they have any excitement in their services, any shouting. What are they going to shout about? I'm sure it's a sad scene over there. And the fact of the matter is, as you study this, the Bible is very, very clear that there's coming a day when we'll meet our end. But you'd say, well, I'm not afraid of the judgment of God because I'm a good person. I've heard that a lot in my life. I've heard a lot of people say, I I'm pretty good, so I'm sure me and God are okay. Let's find out what God says about that. What do you think? 
Don't you think we ought to find out what the Lord says about a matter? Uh, Listen to what the Bible uh, teaches us very clearly in the book of Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. The Bible says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Listen to what it says in John chapter number 3. Boy, we like John 3.16, don't we? Praise the Lord for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He giveth His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise the Lord for John 3.16. Won't you read on to John 3.18? The Bible says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Can I tell you that part of the reason this meeting was necessary is because we stand guilty before a holy God. You say, I'm not a bad person. No. The question is not your morality. The question is your nature. The question is not whether you are a good person. The question isn't how much you give, how much you pray, how much you go to church. The question is, have you been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the question this morning. The Bible says that every one of us born into this world were born sinners. The law implicates us. Let me give you a third thing. I believe there's a need for this meeting because love in and of itself is insufficient. You say, preacher, I thought God is love. Yeah, God is love. But let me say that God's love in and of itself, talking about the attribute of God's love, the fact that God loves us, that in and of itself is insufficient to save the sinner. You say, what do you mean? Let me tell you, God loves us. God loves us dearly. But God will not bend or break His holiness for any man. Listen to what Abraham said in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. He said, shall the judge of all the earth not do right? Let me tell you something. People say, well, I trust I'll go to heaven because God loves me. I'm thankful that God loves every man, woman, boy, and girl in this world. I'm thankful thankful He loved a ten-year-old boy. I'm thankful for that. But it's not enough that God loves us. I asked a Muslim one time. I used to debate. I had a professor in college that was a Muslim. I used to debate him some and talk to him. And uh, I asked him one time, I said, how does Allah forgive you? And he said, what do you mean? I said, how does Allah forgive you? And he said, well, I just pray and Allah forgives me. I said, so you disobey his word. And His Word has definite, absolute, punitive consequences for disobedience. The Koran is one of the harshest cults and cult books in this world. And I said, you're telling me that after you disobey His Word, He just looks at you and forgives you? He said, yeah. He said, you've got a weak God. Said, what do you mean? He said, you've got a God that doesn't keep His Word. Let me tell you something, neighbor. It's not enough that God loves us. God loves us. God can love us uh, for eternity past, eternity future. But if that had been the only merit, if God's love had been the only merit upon which we hope for salvation, it wouldn't have been enough. I want to tell you, God will not break His commands for anyone. There's a lot of people in this world, I'll tell you what they're banking on to get to heaven. And you'll understand what I mean. Don't take a snippet and run with it, but listen carefully. There's people that are basing, basing, their hope of heaven on the friendliness and the love of God with no sacrifice. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Hear people say it all the time. I'm a pretty good person. Surely God wouldn't send me to hell. 
Well, what makes you so sure of that? The Bible says that all the wicked shall be turned into hell. So if you're wicked, does the Bible pronounce us wicked? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. What would make you hope that just because God loves you so much, He'd just say, all right, you're forgiven? Let me tell you something. If this meeting had never taken place, every single one of us would be headed to hell this morning. You say, but God loves me. It doesn't matter. If this meeting that we're talking about, if mercy and truth had never met, if righteousness and peace had never kissed each other, it wouldn't matter how much God loves us, we'd still be headed to hell. I want to say that we see the difficulty of this meeting. I want to say we see the dire necessity of this meeting. But I want to see, say that we see the dark night that this meeting took place. Hey, you say, oh, preacher, the night time. Well, not, not necessarily night chronologically, but night atmospherically. won't take time to read it. We're all so familiar with it. The Bible tells us that on that, I believe it was a Wednesday morning. You can believe what you'd like. It definitely wasn't a Friday. Amen. But you can believe it was on a Wednesday or a Thursday if you'd like. But the Bible teaches us that they took our Lord and Savior from the place of judgment. They took Him up, the old commentators called it the Via Dolorosa, the road of sorrows. They took Him up that path, and He bearing His cross. He walked up that hill, a ways up that hill, His body finally gave way to bearing the cross. They took a man, Simon the Cyrenian, said, Bear the cross of the Savior. They took, Simon took his cross on him. They went up the hill. And they're at a place called Calvary. <laughs> they're at a place called Calvary. They're at a place, the place of the skull, the Bible calls it, Golgotha. Place of death. The Bible tells us that that cross was placed in the ground. Our Savior was nailed to it. Heaven and earth met that day. Heaven and earth met that day. The Bible says that the Son of Man be not lifted up. Lifted up as a bridge between heaven and earth. He was dying for God, but for our sins. The Bible tells us that uh, about the third hour, He cried out. The Bible tells us that the whole earth shook. That the rocks began to tear into two. There was a veil that was hung up in the temple that separated God and man. It separated the Holy of Holies from the place where the priest would minister. The Bible tells us that that veil was ripped right into from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top. Man didn't rip that veil. You say, who ripped it? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the Holy Spirit was the one that kept entrance to the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, if a man walked into the presence of God and had not confessed his sins and gone through the ceremonial cleansing prescribed in the law, he was struck dead. The Holy Spirit would keep that way. Who was it? Whose hands tore that veil? The Bible teaches us that God had torn that veil in two. The death of His Son. The Bible says the veil is, is a picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ. The veil, that is to say, His flesh, is the way the writer in Hebrews describes it. Rent in two, and a way was made. On that day, mercy and truth met together. On that day, righteousness and peace kissed each other. You see, it's not enough that God love us. His commands had to be satisfied. It's not enough that God is a good God. A 
price had to be paid that day. It was there that mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace met together. I like to say God swirled them all together. And now there is a fountain filled with blood. Growing from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I like to believe that there, God put these four ingredients together and grace poured out. We find in this passage, I want to give you four reasons, that, or four things that happened when mercy and truth met together. I want to say first off that the Lord was sacrificed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Someone had to pay the price for your sin debt, my sin debt. If God was going to have mercy, it had to be on someone's account. And the mercy was shown on Calvary that day. God didn't have to do that. We get this idea sometimes that God had to save me. Now, I understand He's bound by His Word, but let me tell you something. If God was to let every one of us die and go to hell, He'd still be God. It's grace that saves us. It's mercy that showed love that day. I want to tell you today, church, that the mercy of God was displayed when the Lord was sacrificed. What about truth, though? I want to say that not only was the Lord sacrificed, but the law was satisfied. You see, you and I, the Bible says, are guilty before God. We owe Him our life. We die and go to hell. People say, I, I, when a person dies and goes to hell, they pay for their sins. No, because to, to say they paid for it implies that they made the full payment. Why do you think people never get out of hell? They're never through paying on that debt. You say, why is that? Because they've offended an eternal God, and they're going to have to pay for it eternally, the Bible teaches us. The Bible says on that day, for you and I, for you and I, the law was satisfied. For those that would believe on Jesus Christ, the Bible says, he, oh boy, the book of Colossians, it says that God took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. People say, oh, I can keep the Ten Commandments. Try keeping the other six hundred and some commandments in the Old Testament. The Bible says in the book of James that if you've offended in all, in one you've offended in all. The Old Testament law was like a chain dangling the sinner over hell. He breaks one and he drops just the same. It doesn't matter if it's a big link or a small link. It doesn't matter if it's a top link or the bottom link or all points in between. You offend one, you're guilty. The Bible teaches very, very clearly that we stood guilty. But it took those handwritings, those ordinances. You say, why couldn't he ignore them? Because they're forever settled in heaven. But he took him, and the Bible says he took him, and he nailed him to his cross. <laughs> oh, he nailed him to his cross. He took all those sins, took all those offenses, everything you've ever done. He didn't just take what you've done, he took what you are. And he took him with eternal hands and eternal nails, he nailed him to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in them, there they stay today. Lost in the sea of God's forgetfulness. The Bible says God's cast them behind His back. We, we find that the law was satisfied in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. The Bible says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It always makes me laugh, people that say that you work your way to heaven. Or there's some people, and you find this to be mostly the case today in a lot of churches, they'll say that we're saved by grace, but then we maintain it through our 
own works. A lot of churches teach that. What does the Bible say about it? The Bible says in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The old preachers used to give the analogy of a man walking between two large tablets, looking down and seeing and saying, I've offended there. I've offended there. I've offended there. And as he walks through the law, his, his guilty heart is condemned and he's made aware of his sinfulness. And he looks and he says, I've offended there and I've offended there and I've offended there. And he says, it's no use. I can't keep it. All of a sudden, his gaze lands upon a cross. And he sees that a way has been made and he can be redeemed from his sins. We find that not only was the Lord sacrificed, not only was the law satisfied, but I want you to notice this with me. I, I like this. Christ's life was substituted. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, remember, c- concerning mercy, the Lord was substituted. Concerning truth, the law was satisfied. But what about our righteousness? Listen to what the Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, 24 through 26, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just. See, that's righteous that God could maintain His righteousness, that He might be righteous, that He might be just, and the justifier of them which believeth in Jesus. Let me tell you something. When mercy and truth met, a way was made that had never been made. When righteousness and peace met, a way had been made that had never been made before. God could maintain His righteousness. But not only could He maintain His righteousness, but He could save the sinner as well. We find in this passage, you know, when you get saved, the old songwriter, I quoted it, I think, last Sunday, the old songwriter said, the best thing that I ever did do was take off the old coat and put on the new. The Bible says we put on the new man and we put on Jesus Christ. And when you get saved by the grace of God, when God looks at you, He don't see your sin. He sees the Savior. When God looks at you, He doesn't see a sinner. He sees a son. When He looks at you, He doesn't see your rebellion. He sees Christ's righteousness. So we find that God's righteousness was maintained. What about peace? We find not only uh, that the Lord was sacrificed, we find not only uh, in this passage that the law was satisfied and Christ's life was substituted. And I'm going to close with this. We find that God's love was shown. Let me tell you something. Love without a sacrifice is nothing but a vain dream. It won't do anybody a bit of good, but once the sacrifice has been made, then there can be peace. Then love can be shown. What does the Bible say in Romans 5, 8? But God commendeth His love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how does the sinner have peace? How does he have peace with God? Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There on Calvary, we find that the Word of God and the will of God met. There on Calvary, we find that the law of God and the love of God met. There on Calvary, we find 
that the justice of God and the justification of the sinner met. And in the person of Jesus Christ, you can be saved today. God doesn't have to ignore His holiness to save you. He just looks at the one that's paid the price. God doesn't have to, to ignore His truth to have mercy upon you. Because the Bible says that that law that was unsatisfied has been nailed to His cross. God doesn't have to ignore His righteousness to have peace with you. Because when the Prince of Peace has entered the picture, <laughs> then the King of Peace, He recognizes it. Can I tell you today that if you're here without Christ, you don't have to leave here. You've probably been looking for something in your life. You've probably been trying to find a way. Can I tell you that you can't find the way? But God's Word gives us the way. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says that we're saved by grace, uh, by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. won't be in your church attendance. It'll be in the cross of Calvary. won't be in your good works. It'll be in the cross of Calvary. won't be in your love for your family. It'll be in the cross of Calvary. Oh, I thank God for that meeting in the dark that day. When the lights went out in this world and the Lord of glory was crucified, He cried out. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'll tell you why He forsook him. He forsook him for you and me. He forsook him so mercy and truth could meet together in the heart of the believer. He, he forsook Him so that the righteousness of God and the peace of God could reign in our lives.